This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Become a patron today at patreon.com forward slash into the portal. Although the world is full of skeptics, there seems to be a series of never-ending occurrences across North America of very real and very strange Sasquatch encounters. Sometimes violent, sometimes fleeting. The flash of a giant hairy humanoid darting behind a tree, or perhaps the infamous sounds of wood knocking echoing through the dense forests. Whatever you choose to believe, the reality persists that for thousands of years, people have been experiencing a phenomena that has yet to be explained, leaving us with one of the most enduring mysteries entrenched into human civilization. The existence of forest-dwelling beings that walk upright like men. But what are these creatures? Or at the very least, what could possibly explain the hundreds of footprint casts, violent attacks, sightings, recordings, and experiences that can only be described as unexplainable, at least for now? Are witnesses seeing a relic human Neanderthal? Or possibly an unidentified ape, the first of its kind in North America? Or perhaps there are other forces at play here, keeping this elusive entity at bay from the human gaze. Whatever the answer may be, we go searching for it this week on Into the Portal as we dive into theories in part three of Strange Sasquatch Encounters. Hello, and welcome back into the portal. I'm Amber Ray. And I'm Andrew McKay. Mm, we're back with part three, the conclusion of our Sasquatch Strange Encounters. That's right. Theories. So today we're trying to kind of uh, bring you guys some super interesting theories. Mm-hmm. And we're really going to try and break down and figure out just what the heck we're looking for here when we're talking about strange Sasquatch encounters. Exactly. We've kind of tried to do that already, <laughs> yeah. but it's tough. We kind of alluded to um, some epic debate that might go on between the whole staunch <laughs> cryptozoologist versus the whole interdimensional slash more metaphysical. We decided we're not going to go and do a debate, but we are no. going to get into both sides of that argument today Definitely. for y'all. Definitely. Before we do, though, just a tiny bit of housekeeping. We had some new uh, iTunes reviews on the Canadian iTunes and on the American one. <laughs> I didn't actually have time to check some of the other international ones, but uh, if they're there, shout out to you guys and we'll get back to you in a bit. So yeah, shout out to Joel McKenzie and to CC1059, who's a brand new listener from Northern BC. So thank you so much for your kind words. Mm-hmm. Um, had a lot of nice things to say. And then uh, we had another one from Dusty Dog 1969 a five-star review from the American <laughs> American <laughs> iTunes, and um, he, he, she, or well, I'm assuming, I don't even know who it is, Dusty Dog, I guess that could be either or, but um, really loves <laughs> the intros, so that was really cool, super encouraging for awesome. me, I love writing and, and doing those, so um, super encouraging, thank you so much, you guys, keep Sweet. that coming. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, before we really dive in, though, we wanted to just do a tiny bit of recap, because mm-hmm. this is part three, we've been talking a lot of Sasquatch here, so, I mean, obviously, 
going all the way back to part one, we focused on the strange side with violent attacks, right? But as we've kind of discovered as we go through here, that this isn't really all that more that strange. This is mm -hmm. a lot more commonplace than previously thought throughout North America, not just sort of the Eastern fallacy of the marked hominids and violent attacks mm -hmm. on the East Coast. Um, what exactly. else did we kind of go through? Like, um, well, we had quite a few cases, right? Like we had the, I don't even know if I even want to try it, but we had the Georgia swamp story. That was quite pivotal. Yeah. A lot of people reached out to us and said that that was quite an amazing story as well. Um, we did, oh, what was the other one? The Ape Canyon. That's huge. Yeah, definitely. And that really added to the lore. And we discussed quite a few people as well, right? Yeah. Like, um, oh my gosh, was J.W. Burns. Yeah, going all the way back mm -hmm. to the 1920s. Mm -hmm. And then obviously Lauren Coleman keeps coming up again and again because he is a cornerstone in this field. Yeah. And obviously he does take the more staunch cryptozoological sort of take on this. Yes. Actually, you know, it's interesting. We were watching the other night. Um, we were watching Animal X <laughs> talking about like winged beasts and creatures. And they were kind of lumping in everything from Mothman to Thunderbirds to flying. Territory, like, um, you know, pterosaurs or whatever. Oh, yeah, right. right. Dinosaur. So that kind of falls into the whole Thunderbird thing. Mm -hmm. But they brought on Lauren Coleman and he was kind of talking about how the creation of Mothman is mostly just the media. And he takes the I, position that it is just an unknown winged species right, right. Yeah. so i thought that was interesting it's not like a supernatural thing because there's so many elements of mothman right and we're going to get into that too it, it applies to sasquatch a lot of ways and we're going to have examples from skinwalker ranch that kind of lend themselves to the more metaphysical interdimensional side of things yes and then we have yeah. the flip side as well right mm -hmm. definitely and we also kind of talked about places where, because all of the, like you were mentioned, mentioning Lauren Coleman, mentioning places like Skinwalker, where there's more mm -hmm. paranormal aspects to this mystery and this phenomena with Sasquatch. We talked about places where you can experience Sasquatches, right? So um, Klemtu was one uh, all across the northern coast, right? Mm -hmm. BC, Washington, Oregon. Shout out to uh, listener Darren Budnick, who um, let us know that Souk, BC is another uh, area on the coast where you are almost guaranteed to have a Sasquatch encounter cool. and or experience. So with all that being said, there's obviously a lot of places we've talked about where this is happening all the time. People are experiencing this right today, probably even, right? If you're out mm -hmm. in the right space, which really just muddies the whole thing, but makes this conversation so fascinating. But that's what we're going to try to get into today because people are experiencing it. It has to be something. We kind of have three main questions here that are the crux of this final part. So the first one is... And this is a big one. How has Sasquatch remained undiscovered in <laughs> terms unquote. of proof? Yeah, undiscovered, quote unquote, because people claim to have discovered, mm -hmm. right? Just without the definitive evidence. So how has Sasquatch remained undiscovered in terms of proof, despite all these locales where they frequent, mm. where people see them, where foot casts are always taken, where... And staunch believers, right, yes. that will tell you literally that Sasquatch is as definitively out there as the earth is round. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> a great example just off the bat with that, and I'll get into that in a second. Totally. We've got some more questions. Question too. number two that's really important here is, are we dealing with a potentially relic human population? So like a surviving Neanderthal, Cro-Magnon man type deal, or mm -hmm. a surviving ancient ape species, which would be the first of its kind in North America. Okay. And 
Final question really for this third part is what's next for Sasquatch research? And you kind of wanted to kick it off with that mm, a little bit here. Yeah, definitely. Your second question though, I feel like is leaving out a little bit of the puzzle, right? Because sure. we could be possibly dealing with a relic human, like you said, Neanderthal, Cro-Magnon, uh, Homo erectus, something to, along those lines of human evolution, the surviving ancient ape theory, as theories, I should say, mm -hmm. as well. But then also on the flip side, are we actually dealing with a supernatural phenomena, something that right. defies rational explanation that goes into the paranormal realm. Yes. So that would be my, but as far as your last question there, what's next for Sasquatch research? I thought this was really interesting. And obviously this isn't super, super modern. This actually happened in 1978, but I think it really kind of paints a picture as to how academics and universities, especially in our neck of the woods in BC, were trying to deal and grapple with this question. Mm -hmm. And it was a legitimate question. And the University of British Columbia, which we are both alumni of, <laughs> it actually held the conference in this year so 1978 like i mentioned and the conference was called anthropology of the unknown i accessed this from mclean's magazine archives and i just thought this was so fascinating they talked about um, in the article, it talked about how over 150 academics and Sasquatch proponents came together to discuss unknown upright hairy hominids in North America. Very which cool. I was like, I wish I could have been there. No kidding. It was four days altogether. And definitely there were a lot of different tones. There was a lot of different speakers from exactly that, the staunch believers to the staunch skeptic. And the, the tone definitely swung from ridicule to solemn discussion throughout. And <laughs> this is cute. There was actually pins available that said, I've seen Bigfoot, <laughs> which was kind of cute. Nice. Um, but the one thing I did want to point to was the presence of Soviet scientists. So this is 1978 in the height of Cold War. I don't know if this was a hot spot or not. <laughs> hot year or whatever. But anyways, right. they were there. And two of which discussed their page, or sorry, 60 page paper which proclaimed the existence of such a creature to be as certain as the fact that the earth is round. So they were very, very staunch. And like yeah. you mentioned, Andrew, when I first told you that, you were like, well, yeah, Siberia, like Eastern Eurasia, the steppes, like mm -hmm. all that, like it's, it's more commonplace and it's, it's almost very similar toned to how North American indigenous tribes talk about it, the certainty Definitely. at least, you yeah. know what I mean? Definitely. Um, yeah, and then it kind of concluded with the idea expressed by both skeptics and believers, um, the immense frustration at the lack of, quote, totally acceptable evidence to support claims and sightings and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so by the end of the conference, there were voracious calls by both, both camps. Uh, for almost like a witch hunt style, like, let's get a body. Like, right. I want a body. And in order for this to be produced, to close the matter kind of thing. <laughs> hmm. yeah. Which I feel like is such a, just a knee-jerk reaction, obviously, like, it on is. the skeptic side. That's one of the questions that we didn't bring up in the beginning here, but uh, Lauren Coleman poses in his, a few of his works, um, the idea of, should we shoot one? If we have the opportunity, mm. and for us, obviously, the answer is unequivocally no. Yeah. Um, nothing should ever be killed to prove it exists. Um, exactly. There's got to be another way. But if that's really the question that's being asked, it's like, clearly we're dealing with something that isn't, that's in, very, very intelligent, that's yeah. good at being hidden. Exactly. Right? Just like all these creatures that we rediscover every single year, new, new species that have remained hidden. So, <laughs> but before we really get into kind of that, that's more hardcore cryptozoological side mm -hmm. of things. There is an even stranger side to all this Sasquatch lore. <laughs> um, and it's a little bit on the ridiculous side. Um, is it I mean, 
it happens. I mean, this is the thing, just like the Sasquatch sightings in the woods, these experiences happen with Sasquatches related to UFO sightings. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's this different side to the phenomenon. These hardcore cryptozoologists, they're going to get their panties in a bunch over this, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's sightings of UFOs followed by sightings of Sasquatch and vice versa as well. Mm -hmm. So just giant, hairy, bipedal hominids and then sightings of UFOs. So many of these bizarre sightings and connections have been made that people in the paranormal community, they, they're looking specifically for this now. They're oh, looking really? for, they're researching specifically Sasquatch UFO cases because they're buying into that paranormal okay. side to this creature. Interesting. There was even a book published in 1980. This was an Australian UFO researcher named Mark Moravec. And he was... Oh, uh, I've heard that name before. Yeah. His book was called The UFO Anthropoid Catalog. So it's basically looking at all these different strange accounts. Very cool. Including both. 1980, hey? Like, mm -hmm. that's actually very telling because even in part one, we referenced uh, Ape Canyon, how that occurred in the 1920s. But then later on, close to, what was it, like 60 years later, Fred, uh, the guy, Fred Beck. Right. He ended up publishing a pamphlet in 1966 about his experience, and he made it a lot more... Not, I'm not going to say, like, psychedelic, but a lot more of those types of connections, right? A lot more um, of the... Uh, like, interdimensional like, type Interdimensional, yeah. Spiritual kind of feelings to yeah. the whole thing. So 1980, this kind of falls in the same era. Definitely. And that was the era when a lot of this was happening, right? Like, with the Becks coming out with that stuff, like, mm -hmm. his later accounts in the 70s and stuff. But there's a whole bunch of stories. We picked out a few just to kind of try to break this down, because I don't really quite know what to make of this Bigfoot <laughs> UFO association. There was one incident on July 31st, 1977, and this happened at Presque Island Peninsula Park in Pennsylvania. Okay. So families on a picnic first saw a strange light near the beach where they were hanging out. And the object was described by a 16-year-old girl, a member of the family, named Betty Jean Clem, who stated that the light was caused by an object that was basically mushroom-shaped, with three lights on one side of it. Hmm. And there happened to be law enforcement near the beach that day on the scene, and along with other people that were chilling there that day, including one of the other family members named Betty and another named Douglas J. Tibbetts. They actually followed what they... Presumed to be a UFO that was hovering ahead. So they, they pursued this. But as they got towards it, they were called back by frantic screams from the car that was parked near the beach, which was the girls, which was Betty Jean Clem and her cousin. So when the family members that were pursuing the UFO, they all ran back and they found Betty along with two of the other young children in the family, Anita, uh, and I'm missing the other name, but they mm. were basically in the car, scared to death by what they would later describe as a massive, necklace, armless, dark, non-human, hairy, humanoid figure moving sluggishly in the underbrush near the car. Um, and when they were questioned... Sluggishly? Yeah, like, it was, like, almost as if it had been dropped there, like, injured. Oh. Um, because oh. there's some weird theories when it comes to Sasquatch and UFO getting the sex. They were questioned by the police that were on the scene, and one of them actually ended up being the chief of the local detachment named Dan Dasanio, and he stated, like, I'm convinced that these young people saw something. He goes on later to state how credible the witnesses were, how their stories were all coherent, and they had no motive to lie. So here you have a whole bunch of people witness a UFO, non-ballistic motion, mm -hmm. it's not moving, it's not making sounds, they go to follow it, and then there's this bizarre humanoid sighting related hmm. to it what the heck is going on in that the story. The description, too, of... <laughs> I love this. Just, I'm going to requote this. Massive necklace, armless, hairy, non-human, hairy humanoid. <laughs> so there's <I> know. <laughs> no arms, no neck. Well, here's the thing. Massive. You take out the armless aspect of that, 
that's marked hominid description. Yeah, it is. Right? Yeah. So, a- aside from the... the- the bunny ears. No, I'm just Aside, well, yeah. <laughs> You're going with that one. But uh, so okay, but there's... Wait, a non-human hairy humanoid. <laughs> like, Humanoid like, like non-human, clearly. Yeah. But what's weird about it's this? Like a running is pair like, of scissors? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> but like w- the questions that this that all these accounts bring up, and I got another one here to give in a sec. Mm-hmm. But is like, are <laughs> are these creatures are are Sasquatch like creatures actual extraterrestrials or interdimensional beings? Mm-hmm. Are they experiments that are coming and going Ooh. and being dropped off willy nilly when they're done with them type yeah. thing by some sort of weird other oh, entities of some kind? That's because that's what there. this almost seems like. Like it's yeah. almost like something just got plopped down, and here we are with a Sasquatch ish sighting and a UFO sighting. Bizarre. And it, it kind of almost reminds me of when you get either cattle mutilations or cattle abductions, that kind of thing too, where things are like either seen descending from a UFO or ascending into one yeah, kind of thing. Um, that's interesting though. Oh, I, right. I, I'm like, I'm kind of, I don't really know what to make of I know. that. Neither do I, no. but we had to bring it up because this is, this is a thing. There's another, I mean, again, hundreds of stories. Here's mm-hmm. another one. December 4th, 1970, just outside Vader, Washington. So winter of 1970, a woman and her children would experience another strange UFO slash hairy creature related series of experiences. <laughs> one afternoon, Mrs. Wallace Bowers was called out to the yard by her children who claimed to see something. They're like, mom, come outside. Mm-hmm. So she rushes outside to see what's going on. And she finds some large mysterious footprints in about one inch of snow in the yard. And she measured them to be around 16 inches long and about five to seven inches wide. And this is what she had to say. This was her quote. The footprints were very large and the night before it had snowed f- and freezing hard afterwards. In comparison of weight, my husband's pickup truck never even went through the snow and ice when it le- when he leaves for work around 5.30 a.m. The morning we discovered the tracks, they were like black or white. Whatever made them was so heavy, it took the frozen snow with each step, plus leaving an impression in the frozen gravel beneath. Hmm. So that was her quote. And then three days later, the family would experience something different. So both her kids and her were in the living room of the home. When the kids noticed something odd in the sky, they call her over to the window. And at first it appeared to be a bright light. But then it clearly was moving again, non-ballistic motion, came closer to the house and they realized that it was a craft of some kind. Basically, the object flew very carefully closer and closer to the house and the mother noticed a glowing light in the center of the craft, while the children noticed what they would later describe as a grey figure being dropped out of the craft as it hovered over top of some nearby trees. Hmm. Okay. The weeks that would pass later on, the family would be haunted by loud, thudding footsteps and other strange noises for, for months. So, did a Sasquatch get dropped off by a UFO here? Oh, I, I have another, like, they say loud, thudding, thudding footsteps. What if those are just tree knocks kind of thing, like how a lot of people report? Potentially. That's really Potentially. interesting. But again, bizarre. <laughs> That's, okay, so just going back to the whole frozen snow the pickup truck never going through the snow so it's not even making an impression no so either this thing has to weigh more than the pickup truck or it made the impressions when the snow was still freezing potentially mm-hmm. right i mean that's crazy her, her, her logic was that like because it is and that makes sense like when i'm when we uh like we live in a cold area or whatever dead of winter like when gravel freezes like and you walk on it it's just you're not leaving a footprint at all mm-hmm. so if something and if you drive a car over it's yeah it's not going to leave a track tire track if there's a footprint in that that's pretty profound you're definitely going to notice yeah well it was snow and then the gravel underneath right. so 
leaving the impression of both. That's it's impressive. Pretty pretty crazy, right? That's pretty. So they never actually, besides seeing the thing get dropped out of the craft, they never actually saw it. They no. just heard it just and felt these, it around. Just the footprints and then strange. Yeah. Strange um, noises. Strange noises. I wonder what other, like, if it was, like, howling noises, if it was machine-like noises. I wonder. We don't really get any more I mean, that, they just eh? described it as thudding, as if it was a creature walking around their house. Like, oh. almost like the Ape Canyon-like situation. Where they're knocking where on the roof or something. Potentially. Or like, they're, they're clearly the... there. There's okay. something outside the house. What's weird about all of these is that the idea of a Sasquatch or something being dropped off, whether whether it's an experiment, whether it's an actual creature associated with the craft or whatever Mm -hmm. there's other cases where people have actually reported seven foot tall plus sasquatch like creatures so hairy bipedal creatures walking willfully out of landed craft Mm -hmm. so literally in 1973 this was just one of many accounts there was an anonymous caller into a radio program in pennsylvania so same area as that first report that claimed there was a sighting of three women who saw a rectangular shaped ufo land off just off the interstate and watched multiple Bigfoot-like creatures exiting the craft. What? So by all accounts, this is a crank call. Yeah. But, but there have well, been multiple... Radio program. Yeah, like there's, there's been multiple radio. accounts of similar hmm. instances. I honestly feel like I, I might be misremembering, but I feel like Cryptonaut episode covered something similar not too long ago, where it was interstate, so it was a woman in a snowstorm, and she was traveling, and then essentially what happened was she thought she saw a craft land. I can't remember, though, if there was... That does sound really familiar. If it was more an alien figure come out, or if it was more of, like, a hairy humanoid creature. I can't remember that part. But that just, I don't know, for some reason, that just totally tweaked my memory and brought that up. So... Oh. What, what, no, no, so no, we're, we're we're about to say the same thing. What the hell is going I'm on just, here? I'm confused. Well, I'm not confused, but again, right? Like, it's just it's hard to talk about all these things and have a cohesive conversation about it. So I'm Indeed. glad we're kind of breaking it up a little bit and going down this line of thought first. Yes, because I have a lot to add to this conversation, and a lot of it um, has to do with Skinwalker Ranch. That's a big example. Yes. Weird portals, Sasquatch-like things, orbs, all happening at Skinwalker Ranch. Um, and for those of you who haven't listened oh, to like the Astonishing Legends yeah. series on Skinwalker, because we haven't covered it, go check them out. Yes. Um, but it's essentially a, a, a ranch in Utah, a cattle ranch in Utah that is known for bizarre activity. Yeah. So our first introduction was on Astonishing Legends. We ended up picking up this book called Hunt for Skinwalker. And it's by uh, two authors, Colm A. Kelleher, who's a PhD, and then George Knapp, mm-hmm. who is a paranormal investigator, and I believe we've referenced him before I think in so. other yeah. episodes. But, okay, so Skinwalker is just full full of all of it, essentially. You get <laughs> a bit of everything. Um, I wanted to read a few different passages from this book. Um, the first one comes from the chapter Orbs, and it speaks to the quote, invisible giant creature that scared the wits out of this rando hippie meditator that showed up one day on the ranch. Mm-hmm. Um, Tom, as he's named in the book, they're all fake names in the book, but he is one of the family, the father, I believe, and he led the stranger out to a field as requested by him where this person just presumed to meditate. Mm-hmm. And then this happened. All right, so this is a quote from the book. Without warning, something broke from the tree line and moved swiftly towards the meditating man. Tom blinked. He still couldn't see what it was, even though it was broad daylight. 
It was blurred as if hidden in the middle of heat distortion and was covering ground at enormous speeds. Gorman realized that this chimera, or chimera, was rapidly bearing down on him. Tom was about to yell a warning, but it was too late. The shimmering, wraith-like, huge thing had stopped just inches from the meditator as it let out a deep-throated animal roar that echoed around the ranch. The roar sounded half like a bear and half like a lion. Tom froze. The stranger leapt back about ten feet and fell down. He began screaming. As fast as it approached, the shimmering, almost invisible creature, in quotes, departed for the tree line at top speed. Tom's sharp eyes could make out only a blur of dancing, flickering, wavy lines, like pixelated blocks. Within seconds, the creature had vanished into the trees. That's the end quote Crazy. there. So that was from page 8283 of the book there. Um, I thought that was interesting because I referenced that quite a bit in other episodes. Yeah. But this speaks to, to me, in my mind, they don't actually say it's on two feet or anything because they can't actually make out what it is. Right. But it's almost as if it's operating under some sort of guise, as if it's not quite entered into a fully physical form. Right. But is able to still manifest itself, and this happened quite a bit in in at Skinwalker Ranch, and during the course of the Gorman family, as they're named in the book, the Gorman family stay their time there, and then later on, when um, the NIDS, so this is National Institute of Discovery Science team, led by Robert Bigelow, was funded by Robert in 1996. They actually descended on the ranch and tried to see if they could uh, capture some of this and get some evidence and some yeah. de definitive answers. And I don't think they ever did because no. this thing, whatever you want to call it, phenomena, entity, I don't even know, entities, plural, yeah. managed to outsmart them in a lot of ways, I think. And there was another, another sort of really weird sighting experience that was documented by Colm Kelleher, and it was in the chapter titled Encounters. And uh, he basically describes how his first night of watching the property, he was stationed with uh, his colleague, I can't remember the name of the colleague, but they were at this particular lookout that a Canadian investigator had pointed them to that had been visiting the ranch previously. And he, this Canadian dude, had actually got um, imagery of a mysterious blue light that had opened up to him and was only visible on infra infrared film. Okay. So I'm not sure, I'm not a scientist, I'm not sure if there is some sort of rational explanation for that, if something could show up on infrared film that wouldn't appear to the naked eye that would have like I'm almost thinking like the Min Min lights phenomena right yeah, with like yeah. Fata Morgana um, illusions things like that yeah I'm not sure if this could be the case to them but this is really freaky so essentially Kelleher describes the experience as follows quote the NID scientist and I gazed out into the field nothing moved even the dogs were silent my colleague stood maybe 10 feet to my right he had night vision binoculars down on the right at the other end of the property stood two more intrepid investigators, also with night vision binoculars. Then it appeared without warning, no more than 75 yards to our left. A silent, bright sphere of bluish-white light about the size of a basketball hovered, moving slightly as if swaying gently. The dogs, which were behind us, seemed to notice its abrupt appearance. Hmm. Okay, so the dogs noticed. Yeah. The object was not more than 15 feet off the ground. It appeared to be bobbing slightly and was bright enough that I could see the grass lit up below it. There were no obstructions to our sign, our line, sign of light, <laughs> line of sight. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> this 
um, thing was definitely within our small pasture. So they could definitively see it. And right. he actually describes how, um, yeah, you can see the last, the grass lit up below it. Sorry, I can't talk today. No, but essentially, great. he goes on to describe how his colleague actually saw, using his infrared night vision binoculars, he saw a huge black thing. This is a quote. A huge black thing in the trees just in front of us, and it's moving north. That's what he said to Kelleher. Crazy. Yes. Um, so, essentially... <laughs> The dogs were well in tune with this, uh, got his attention right away, and basically this guy started taking a series of long exposure shots trying to capture this entity that was witnessed by his colleague in the tree line. Yeah. And it's freaky. This guy said it's big, and it's in the trees or behind the trees, blocking out the stars. Okay. Yeah. I was like, how? He doesn't actually give a height, but I uh, big, so I'm imagining over t 10 feet tall. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Massive. Exactly. So this thing actually took over his mind at one point. It said, we are watching you okay. in his brain. So he like had some sort of telekinetic communication or whatever. Yeah. And um, essentially it got smaller. So the light got smaller and then the thing disappeared and the light disappeared. And this guy was really freaked out. He just kept muttering Jesus Christ over and over again. Yeah, <laughs> like he was like, as would I. Yes, exactly. So I thought that was a really, really, really interesting sort of thing. So you get orbs in this account, and then you get upright humanoid-like things, right. or entities. Things. That are sort of there, sort of not sort there. Sort of there, sort of not. It really reminds me of the first story that you told about how, like, necklace, armless, black thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Weird. Very weird. I wonder what time of day that first story was that you mentioned. Did, well, I mean, it's a, a family at the beach. I mean, presumably it's like, it's obviously daylight. Yeah, you'd imagine. I mean, you're, you're any time before 5 p.m. would be my guess, right? Mm -hmm. Probably between noon and 5 or something like that. Yeah. If you're at the beach. But I mean, that's this, I mean, obviously nothing definitive from this. It's just no. a large humanoid-like figure. But mm -hmm. again... That's what people are seeing in places on the north coast of BC that aren't necessarily associated with orbs and UFOs, but we have this same, we have these similarities mm -hmm. and we have these similarities with potentially marked hominids on the East coast with this whole thing with the difference of having a neck or not, or the color being really black or mm -hmm. having other marked features like potentially blonde, like mm -hmm. yellow top. Or if it is this more metaphysical thing where it's like, literally this thing is like predator where it has like some sort of like, well, that's what it sounds like. That shimmering. Yeah. Unless it's like literally, is he, is it just such a hot day that he is witnessing a mirage moving over the landscape? But how do you explain the sound? No, you can't. That's, yeah. Yeah, I can't. There's, do a, that. there's a lot going on there. And I'm not saying that, that either of those stories from Skinwalker Ranch are definitively a Sasquatch story, but they do allude to a lot of uh, Bigfoot and Sasquatch phenomena in the book. And as well, there's a large, large history with the Utes. Um, the Utah yes. indigenous groups right. in that area, and they have a, obviously a rich tradition and a rich history um, involving Bigfoot. Right. So, so I just wanted to bring those up as yeah. like another few interesting, creepy, whatever Love stories. It. Yeah, it just kind of, like we've been saying, it does kind of muddy the conversation, but in a good way, I think, because it broadens it at the same time. 
there's so many fun things to talk about with this and it just keeps going, right? It like really we does. end up with more questions than answers no matter what. <laughs> but we do yeah. want to try to bring it a little bit more down to earth, pun intended, from yeah. UFOs mm-hmm. um, and talk about other unknown forest creatures in indigenous lore that could potentially be linked to Sasquatch mm-hmm. and this whole idea of Sasquatch being more metaphysical. Mm-hmm. But first, before we do, we wanted to take a quick coffee break for Coffee Gator. Have you ever wondered what keeps Sasquatch squatching all night? He really does seem to have endless energy for his nighttime activities, throwing boulders, tree knocking, attacking cabins and such. Must be a double dose of coffee, conveniently hot and ready to go in his stainless steel copper lined thermal travel cup. Coffee Gator has many awesome designs and colors, all with the highest technology to keep your coffee safe and hot. Coffee Gator really does have everything you need to drink better coffee. I'd say they're probably one of the most innovative coffee companies in the business. Even their canisters have extra design features to keep coffee as fresh as possible, including a built-in CO2 valve that eliminates harmful attacking CO2 while keeping your coffee ultra-fresh, as well as protection from light, moisture, and oxygen, all factors that compromise the bean's quality before it's even brewed. And as a listener of the show, you can have the same awesome coffee experience as Sasquatch with 15% off your purchase using promo code QUARK, spelled Q-U-A-R-K. Visit coffeegator.com today and explore all the amazing options they have to get you drinking better coffee. That's promo code QUARK, spelled Q-U-A-R-K. And we're back. So make sure you guys go check out Coffee Gator because they have so many cool mm, things. Keeps the fuel going. Oh God, or is the fuel. Is the fuel that keeps <laughs> us going. Clearly I need another cup. Yeah, we could probably <laughs> use one. But, but you know, we don't have time. We don't have time, Amber. Because we're talking about a few other metaphysical beings here that aren't necessarily directly linked to Sasquatch, but they're dwelling in the forest. Mm-hmm. And it definitely falls under the same camp in this conversation here. Yeah. And one of these creatures, beings, metaphysical spirits, if you will are known as the stick people. And we actually came across these in our second ever episode Hmm. um, talking about Ogopogo. We'll get to that in a second though. But there's many different traditions of these stick people, but in the traditions of the Salish and other Northwest indigenous tribes, the stick Indians are malevolent and extremely dangerous forest spirits. So details about stick Indians vary from tribe to tribe. And they're described as they can be large, hairy, Bigfoot-like creatures in some Salish groups, mm-hmm. and as forest dwarves or smaller entities in other groups. Including the so Yakima. Including the Yakima. So that's interesting, and we actually had reference in part one of the series to these forest dwarves that kind of are known in more like the interior zones, which is kind yeah, of cool. that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in some of these traditions, like we said, I mean, they're, they're not, you don't want to run into them. They have the powers to essentially paralyze people, and these would be the hunters that are going out into the woods, right? In, in the ancient lore. And they would actually end up bringing offerings to these to these entities to try to make sure they're getting through okay. But they had powers to paralyze, hypnotize, cause insanity. Um, others are merely would lead people astray by making eerie sounds, whistling or laughter in the woods at night. That ties <laughs> into a lot of other creatures too, right? The, um, oh, the uh, Wendigo. Like the chain, like what's what? changeling i'm just thinking with the laughing in the woods it's almost mm-hmm. windigo that's too, what right? i'm trying to think yeah, yeah, yeah windigo, totally. yeah. Mm-hmm. super super creepy they're also um there's legends of them eating people right children can fall prey to them they're also known to potentially molest women they're basically just massive <laughs> sorry nasty aggressive spirits mm-hmm. um that seek revenge 
to, to those who disrespect them. Exactly. What do you make of this? Wow, it's kind of funny. That almost reminds me of, like, the idea of them taking revenge against people who disrespect them or injure them or perhaps stray into their territory, that type of thing. Definitely reminds me of Abe Canyon to a T. Yeah. And also kind of reminds me of some of the stories we came across when we were looking into goblin lore. Yeah. And stuff like that. But these definitely. are definitively malevolent, like you said. Like, they're not... They're, it's it's not really uh, like debatable, I guess. Like you know, like they're not like something that you can make your friend like you can no. with some types of goblins that'll right. help you. They'll leave you stuff. You know, they'll do chores for you in the night, that type of thing. If right. you kind of like um, persuade them to do so with offerings of gifts and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but, exactly. And in a lot of cases, like there's not even that many traditional legends talking about them because of in part due to the taboos related mm-hmm. to these deadly creatures, right? So the idea of saying the actual Salish names of these beings in public is considered to be provoking their attacks in some cases, right? And there's belief amongst a lot of these indigenous groups where people still adhere to this today. They Mm -hmm. won't talk about them. Or they'll only refer to them in their English names, so not in their traditional indigenous names. And actually, we had an example that, like you alluded to, right, from Coralie when we talked to her at the Cynic Waves Museum about the Seelix people's ideas of the legendary Ogopogo and then um, some other legendary creatures, right? We were trying to pick her brain a little, mm. and she was quite hesitant. She did not want to even say the words, right, even nope. in English. Nope. She basically alluded to the idea that members of her band have had encounters with these peoples, stick peoples in particular, that they are dangerous. You do not want to mess with them. And that elders even bring great wooden sticks with them into the forest as gifts to these spirits if they should encounter them. Right. And again, right, like, yeah, they could they could easily descend on a home if they feel... Um, if they feel disrespected, they could terrorize its inhabitants in many ways. She was talking about how, like, even, like, way back in the day, like, when they had quite, uh, like, um, I don't even know what the, what the term would be, like, the longhouses, um, like, okay. their, their, their dwellings, yeah, essentially, yeah. and how sometimes stick people would literally terrorize them. It reminded me of Ape Canyon, where they're poking sticks in between Through jabbing that, stuff right. and, and just, like, probably, like, yeah, like, throwing rocks, the whole bit. Yeah. And so it's very reminiscent of Ape Canyon. It definitely is, mm-hmm. for sure. Then, And the, the reason... Okay, so there's multiple reasons why we wanted to bring this up. Obviously, this is a forest-dwelling entity of some kind, very similar to Sasquatch potentially. Mm-hmm. But there's also this idea that obviously these things are nasty. And there's some ideas in certain groups that to see a Sasquatch is extremely bad luck, potentially mm. even a harbinger of death. And this is something we oh. should have brought up in part one, but we didn't. And we'll get to it in just a sec. But before we do, there's even more in terms <laughs> of creatures of the woods that mm-hmm. could be associated with Sasquatch. So many. There's a few here. I'm going to talk about the woodsmen, and this comes from Athabascan lore. And so, again, right, this is a hairy Bigfoot-like wild man living in the forest, um, moves silently. Okay. Okay. Rarely reveals himself to humans, so very much on the periphery of our world. Right. Um, Frequently known to steal things, causing mischief. There are stories of these woodsmen um, capturing children again, right? It's a lot of consistencies. Uh, Pursuing humans and also attempts to mate with humans as well. Okay. Yes. Um, In some tribes, such as the Atna, there is said to be only one woodsman who is this like immortal mythological character, while in other tribes, um, it's more of like a plural and there's both genders. It's more of like a species or a tribe within itself kind of thing. Right, okay. And these actually slightly, in some cases, overlap with what's known as 
bush Indians. Um, but again, in Athabascan lore in particular, they consider them different beings. Bush Indians are a lot more aggressive, a lot more human-like to the Athabascans, and live in tribes, whereas the woodsmen are more solitary, stealthy, and don't kill anyone. Interesting. Um, a bit more on the bush Indian or bushman. It says here, um, this is all from uh, nativelanguages.org. And it says here, bush, bush Indians are hairy wild men of the tundra in Ahtna and other Alaskan Athabascan folklore areas. Uh, bush Indians are very aggressive and often feature as bogeymen in stories told to children, <laughs> sometimes kidnapping, even eating unwary kids. Mm. So very much um, bleeding into the whole, like, I, I'm almost picturing like Aesop's fables, right? Where it's like, these are tales to keep people in line. Yep. We got the same kind of idea when we talked about Stingy Jack yep, and definitely. how this that applied more to swamps than forests with the idea of don't wander too far because no. there are dangerous things out there. And it's not as if these aren't based in truth. It's, you know... It is dangerous. It is, <laughs> exactly. But the idea of a boogeyman is going to get you in the woods is... Um, <laughs> pretty spooky mm -hmm. what we get like what's interesting here like i mean you mentioned a few different things like obviously the idea of one being a solitary creature which mm -hmm. totally implies more metaphysical paranormal like not a sustaining breeding population mm -hmm. of an actual species of something right not to mention though like we do get a lot of examples of say like um like apex predators in our neck of the woods like bears um cougars they're all solitary creatures yeah they don't I mean, live together no no they have their offspring and and, and that's about that so it right? could potentially be a, a breeding thing too potentially <laughs> i mean but the idea of like a tribe in itself is a lot lends itself more to like painting a human picture of this as opposed to like a an animal. I hate using that binary. I know, I know, it's tough. It's, uh, it's tough to escape from, though. Yeah, like, with just is. using our linguistics here. Mm -hmm. But, like, what we've essentially established with these other examples is that, you know, the woodsmen of Athabasca, the stick people in these legends, they're more or less always negative, right? These creatures are not benevolent at all, and this brings us back to the part one and mm -hmm. violent encounters. And some of the things we didn't actually mention is that there's a lot of indigenous groups that actually believe and this is a quote directly from uh, one of Lauren Coleman's books, is to see a Sasquatch is to die. So Ooh. this idea that there's a belief that to encounter one is a bad omen mm -hmm. and would lead to horrible luck, illness, and even death. So does this have anything to do with the idea of Sasquatch as po more paranormal, you know, link, yeah, link to UFOs, the uh, more grand unified theory in hmm. a way? Because we do have these other examples of clearly kind of metaphysical entities that are evil in a way or yeah. something like that so mm -hmm. there's this also this belief with sasquatch that's sort of similar so some people even point to these modern day deaths that could be linked to this ancient fear of the Ooh. creature beyond the idea of it that it's massive like 10 feet tall you don't want to mess with it right like deaths in the woods you mean in forests and well, disappearances or like let me yeah exactly so we we mentioned one uh in yeah, part in the one 50s. right in the mm -hmm. 50s in washington yes in the and, canyon region and to go back Two, two seconds ago, too, when we're talking about the idea of, like, kidnapping and aggressive, like, we mentioned Seraphine Long's story, where she right. was kidnapped, briefly touched on Albert Ostman and his kidnapping, stuff like that, right? Mm -hmm. But there's some really famous names, but some people believe associated with this idea of harbinger of death, including <sighs> Roger Patterson. So, <laughs> Roger Patterson, he passed away just a few years after he shot his infamous video at Bluff Creek, California, right? Yeah. So, that's one example. Researchers Fisher and Krantz, two of the men uh, on the right. 2000 Skookum Cast expedition, they died a mere two years after their find. Mm -hmm. There's another story we didn't actually mention in part one 
but we encourage you guys to go check it out. The Ruby Creek incident was a, an incident in the 1940s in BC near the Fraser oh. River with a family. This was much, much later, but it that was, entire family yeah. drowned. They did. They did drown. It was like literally 15 years later, though. It was like 11 years. Wow. Still okay. a, way, yeah. a ways away. But hey, bad luck doesn't always happen right away, right? I mean, some... You're going to encounter bad luck at any point in your life. <laughs> but, but this, that's real, know, that's right. real bad luck, though. Like, that's but not that's just like... That's a pioneer family. Like, that was in the, the it's early true. half of the 20th century. Like, a lot of people are moving and grooving and, and getting into I places agree. that they can't get I out know, of. I know, I agree, but <laughs> moving and grooving <laughs> across <laughs> the ice. <laughs> Boogieing, man. But, uh, there, I don't think there's anything to this. No. But I do think it is kind of interesting. I, yeah. And it's funny that you brought this up, actually, because I did read that a little bit in Lauren Coleman's book, and he doesn't really give no, much credence no, to it. No, he doesn't. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't give much credence to any of the the woo-woo yeah. paranormal stuff, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is which is important. We need people on the yeah. on the hardcore cryptozoological side That's of things. That's true. But going back to the whole Skookum cast, those two Fisher and Krantz, two researchers that died two years after their find, mm-hmm. that was actually really unfortunate. We did talk about that in, I think it was part two. We mentioned it briefly. Where it was yeah. like, yeah, it was like super unfortunate because at that time there was a huge debate going on about this cast. Yeah. And these were two proponents and they were there and they died. So they weren't really there to And they were PhD their... researchers. Exactly. So they weren't really there to lend credibility to it and it was no. really unfortunate and I'm yeah. still really mad about that Me I don't too. like Smithsonian even no. though I did reference them at one point in this episode but <laughs> <laughs> just look at the cast man come on now yeah. you know what I'm saying so annoying but mm-hmm. I think we should migrate into more of a let's let's get into some real theories here okay. because we've talked about the craziness a yes. little bit okay and we metaphysical craziness but okay yeah so let's talk about Let's talk about a few different things here. So we've got, yeah, so many competing ideas as to what this thing is. Is it a phenomena? Is it a creature? Whatever. Let's figure out what the hell's going on here. So on the one hand, if there is a North American population of hairy bipedal hominids, would it make sense that they would be so widespread? Hmm. Hmm. Throw that out there. We kind of have touched on that before. So despite wide variations in climate and landscape, um, from, say, Vancouver Island to the far north of Ontario, even up into um, into uh, the north of Canada, well, Alaska, right? right? We're referencing... Alaska, all the yeah. way into the Georgian swamps, right? So this yep. is a large area. And is it really plausible for something like this to inhabit all of these in- environments? The question being, are they all related in some way? Or are okay. they different? Do you want to pose that question too? Well, I mean, that's kind of... I'm honestly just going to answer that right now. I feel like, yes. Yeah. I feel like, yeah. If, if humans can do it, they can do it. <laughs> and Makes do it better, probably. <laughs> <laughs> like, and then, on the other hand, obviously, like, let's just talk about the fact that there is, uh, there is a lack of physical evidence, namely a skeleton, a body, that type of thing. So, you would think that perhaps by some point there would be some type of evidence. But Andrew, you had a good point to sort of counteract that. And it's like, really though, the modern search has only been going on for just over 60 years. More or less, yeah. The lore goes back centuries and thousands, but yeah. the actual modern search, quote unquote, yeah. hasn't really been taking place over that long. And then on top of it, um, the people that are seriously interested in this phenomenon are seriously hampered by a lack of funding. And Absolutely. like, you know, I really wish that the University of British Columbia would reopen some sort of uh, conference or oh, something like that. Or We should reach out to them. We're alumni. Maybe we can uh, pitch the idea. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, like you just said, only really been going on in terms of hardcore searching mainstream popular culture, people, people keeping an eye out for this mm-hmm. since the mid 1950s. 
right? And and then later into the 1950s with the Bluff Creek incident. And I got into a bit of a Twitter argument the other day <laughs> with someone, not an argument, healthy argument, right? Debate. Debate about just, I, I, he was a staunch skeptic, right? We would have found a body by now. We would have found something by now. And I just find that so laughable, especially about us being here in BC, right? Mm-hmm. We live in a, a place where obviously there's a lot of forest fires. We're losing forests every year, but there's still 60 million hectares of forest, yep. including 50, uh, what was it? I think it was, oh, I got to pull it up, but it was like a good chunk of that is like the Great Bear Rainforest in places where people aren't even allowed to go. Mm-hmm. You're not allowed to go there. Yeah. It's off limits mm-hmm. unless you're like indigenous. So no one's going in there to look. That's yeah. a good place to hide. Yeah. And that's just one tiny little fraction in just BC, not including Oregon, not California, oh, totally. not Washington. It's crazy. Just take a drive on any BC highway and yeah. you just look in the mountains and just just take in that expanse of vast wilderness. Like yeah. I just, it's kind of hard to fathom. Like even at our new place here, we've got this awesome view of like the Okanagan mountains and Every time I pull up binoculars, like every night, cause I'm like, oh, am I going to see something out there? Because <laughs> like, yeah, it just right? feels so inevitable. It's like it's such a big expanse. Totally. Everywhere. And especially in Canada. Like, obviously, it's a lot more heavily populated in the U.S. Yeah. But, but still, mm-hmm. so, and if it's just a small population, there's a lot of places to go. Okay, so let's get into some of these more hardcore cryptozoology arguments. And sure. you had the bear theory, just to jump us off here. Yeah, this is kind of like one of our only hardcore crypt like Lauren Coleman kind of esque more like a Joe a Nickel. Yeah, more like a Joe Nickel in a, in a sense. Because there's a lot of skeptics believe that all these sightings are essentially mistaken bears, right? Black bears, brown bears, different mm-hmm. circumstances of people just seeing bears. Exactly. Standing up on two feet for yes. short distances, etc. etc. They're the right color, they're the right height roughly when they're standing on their two when they're standing on their hind legs, right? Their paws can leave very interesting prints that sometimes look more primate like, especially when they slide, if mm-hmm. they're walking on a downslope, things like that comparatively to other uh, prints like wolf and things mm-hmm. like that. But I have this kind of crazy, I don't know how crazy, a bit of a crazy idea <laughs> because I'm, I'm, I'm going to throw a bone to the skeptics here who are thinking that every single person who sees a Sasquatch has seen a bear and mm-hmm. it's actually just dumb, even if they've been hunting for 50 years <laughs> and they've seen a million bears. What if there is a bear that is just a hair different, a hair just slightly different in terms of their morphology from the typical brown and black bears that we see on the North Coast. Hmm. So could it be somewhere in between a a primate relative and a bear? Not in terms of genetics, but in terms of their appearance. So like a bear species that just happens to walk more bipedally, not all the time, but from more distances potentially, or be seen standing more often. But then when you see it not in those Sasquatch, I'm doing air quotes, everyone here, Sasquatch positions, (laughs) it's just a bear. It's a bear. It's a very subtle switch. It's a bear. It's definitely a bear. It has to be a bear. (laughs) There there is precedence of this, right? The moon bear in Sumantra. There's a lot of misidentifications of the moon bear as the Orang Pendek, the little man of the forest. Ooh, you know what I'm thinking of too? In Australia, when we covered the, um, oh my gosh, the bunyip, we had reference to uh, Pleistocene era animals that basically had a combination of bear and sloth genetics. Yes, so, that's right. Yeah, that could be possibly some crazy weird thing. But hey, I never like even a... thought about sloths. There were lots of North American ground sloths. Maybe <laughs> they evolved to walk bipedally. Maybe we're dealing with sloths here, people. <laughs> so, okay, let's let's shift from that though. Because that's kind of that... cool. I like that idea though. Just before we shift away. Sure. I, anyways, yeah, no, that's all I had to say. But you have a lot here on the like more. I would say it has 
lends more credibility, and that's the whole idea that we're dealing with an unknown ape species. Yeah, potentially. Lauren Coleman kind of coined this term NAPES, North American apes, and talks about it as sort of a distinct group when when it comes to Sasquatch, because a lot of the prints, casts, and evidence is a little bit different, but it does kind of, yeah, it, it props up this conversation. Mm-hmm. Are we looking for an unidentified ape species in North America? How unlikely hmm. is that, and are we ever going to figure this out? Mm-hmm. So some of the best evidence of Sasquatch or Bigfoot is obviously the casts, right? The footprints cast taken all over. But what's really interesting is in some cases, especially in the Southwest, the casts are different. The toes are splayed out on a 90 degree angle. Hmm. The, The width and length can be different. So for example, we talked a bit about the skunk ape and how this was different down South and the bogs, heavy tropical terrain, things Mm -hmm. like that. And they're only about five to six feet tall in some instances, the skunk ape. right? And other napes of the Southwest. So significantly shorter, significantly more monkey-like, right? Than the Sasquatch being more human-like. Mm-hmm. So this almost reminds me of like the Delhi monkey man from like uh, in oh India. Gosh. Yes. Things like that. Oh, we have um, to cover that one. Hey? Yeah, we definitely do. Oh, yeah. The other weird thing about sightings of these North American apes or napes, if you will, that is different than Sasquatch and sort of muddies this, but still, again, we're, is there an opportunity of apes in in North America? Could this be a thing? Is that people have seen them swimming. And when we're trying to figure out whether or not a great ape ancestor could have come across the Bering Strait and be Sasquatch today, great apes don't typically swim, right? They're not, they, they can't really. They, I mean, if they absolutely have to, I believe chimpanzees and things like that can swim. I've but, never seen an image of a monkey, like, lit- bathing. The only thing I've ever seen is that one scene in Planet Earth mm-hmm. where there was the baboons or the gibbons or something, and they were just trying to keep warm in the, right. in the hot spring or whatever. So they can, but they're not known to, mm-hmm. right? And this is something that's been spotted because they're always spotted near uh, water, typically. Okay. The napes are, particularly. The napes are. Interesting. I, is that something to do with disguised i don't know like camouflage like a way of moving and not being because like animals um a good way to lose a, a scent is to go in water right and True. Like, like i'm just referencing even just like criminal escapees that you know go upstream and try to elude the the scent of the dogs kind of thing you know what i mean right um or the dogs chasing his scent <laughs> trying <laughs> yeah. to elude the smelly dogs <laughs> <laughs> gotta get away from this this is just atrocious <laughs> so yeah i mean this is again like are we looking... I don't really know what we're looking for here, but we mentioned a few different examples of this in previous episode, right? Mm-hmm. So the the 1869 gorilla in Ohio yep. example, mm-hmm. where the the, um, the daughter and father were attacked in the carriage right. by what they described as a gorilla, okay, not mm-hmm. a bipedal hominid. Right, and we kind right? of discussed that in the context of the changing face of Sasquatch and how perhaps um, that book that was published about the African wilderness and all these... Um, explorations in Africa and great apes and all that kind of stuff, like how that could have influenced the conversation. Potentially, mm-hmm. definitely. And this this would continue, right? Like, it wasn't just these early, like, gorilla sightings, though, like we mentioned in those... In, was it part two or part one? I, I guess part was, one. I think it was part one, yeah. 1949, there were two fishermen named Charles Jones and George Kaufman who reported seeing something very similar. They basically rushed back into town of Boone County, Indiana, mm-hmm. claiming that they were chased from the banks of the river by what they described as a giant brown gorilla. Ooh. And that's it. <laughs> a giant brown gorilla. Brown. 
chased. Yeah, like the, clearly pursuing them, wanting okay. to attack them. Aggressive, right? All and right. claims like this would continue. Brown, though. Normally gorillas are black. Or silverbacks have that like whitish on them. Well, I mean, that's just the question, though. What are, is this a escaped gorilla from or, a circus? Or, or like, what is going on? Exactly. Or did they mistake a bear for a gorilla? Why would a brown bear be chasing two full-grown men, though? That's bizarre. Because he's angry. They stole his honey. I guess could have been near a, a cub or something. Yeah, exactly. You never know. So, like, claims like this would keep continuing, though, right? And mm-hmm. this still happens today, all the way down south. But... I like this next one that you're going to read. Yeah. <laughs> 1968, Kinlock, Missouri. A young boy was snatched up by what he described as a gorilla in his backyard. His aunt also claimed to see this happen, and she started screaming along with the dog barking. This is what supposedly scared off the creature, drops the boy, and runs out of the backyard. <laughs> Very much a Marlon Lowe-like yeah. situation oh, with, totally. the, with the Thunderbirds, right? Oh my gosh. Was that the same year, too? What year was Marlon Lowe Marlon Lowe Low was 70s. Oh, okay. I think it was 76, Marlon Oh, okay. Low. Never mind. But... It always seems to be near rivers and creek beds that people encounters the encounter these napes, even mm-hmm. giving rise to the pop culture creations of like the legend of Boggy Creek. Oh yeah, right, and that monster down there that terrorized a family near the swamps, mm-hmm. and, and other locals where you know Walnut Creek, Alabama, um, the uh, Anclote River, Florida, Sugar Creek, Indiana, lots of water related things. It almost weird, yeah, and. To me, my question then becomes is, like, like obviously Florida is a big, like, wetlands, kind of swampy area. Alabama has quite a few places like that as well. I'm trying to think, like, is it just the fact that that's the dominant form of the landscape and that's kind of why people are kind of making that connection? Mm -hmm. Um, I would also want to question, especially with the one with the kid, like, was this thing wet when it got you? And did it smell bad? Did it stink like a swamp? Like, because uh, obviously we get the skunk ape. Maybe that's, that's why they call it the skunk ape is because it smells like the freaking marsh Decay, that it came out of. Right? I think yeah. we kind of mentioned that in, oh, yeah. uh, in one of the, pa- in part two. Exactly. And, and you can also make the connection too. If, <laughs> it's so funny. A lot of this evidence, you can just go one way or the other. Yeah. Where it's like, okay, well, obviously this is a product of its physical environment and it's just stinks because it's in stank. Um, the other other flip side is like, well, no, these things, these, um, as they come out of their portal or their interdimensional, whatever, they produce a sulfur, which is all, always, ah. so not always, but often associated with, um, UFOs and things yep. like that, or even ghosts. Yeah, definitely. They, like paranormal phenomena that isn't exactly this, but you know what I mean? So you can kind of go either way. I love how we've just like kind of, I feel like we're at a fork in the road and that we're just, I don't want to go one way or the other, but we're just kind of, we're, we're reaching for both right now. I know, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you're looking at this, what we just, the stories I just gave and the idea of napes from a zoological, cryptozoological perspective, it's good evidence in terms of differentiating the ones we're looking at on the North coast to Southwest. Mm -hmm. Clearly we're dealing with some type of animal species. That's like you mentioned a minute ago, different from North, Northern Ontario, way colder, different terrain warmer yeah. more humid temp- temporal environment on the vancouver coast and then the boggy swamps mm-hmm. you're shorter you've got different size feet but different hair color and you smell different but you're potentially I, still related i wonder if the different like the morphology of the foot and that distinction has something to do with it being more of like a flipper like um appendage like as they're swimming, right? If they swim, then they they That's would kind of like question, splay out or splay out <laughs> and be like wider at the top yeah. of the foot yeah. for, as some sort of a paddle per se. Mm. Mm. Huh. I mean, the question really is like, were these just tall tales? And there's so many more, right? Mm-hmm. Or like I just said, are these links to slightly different Sasquatch, Bigfoot, light creatures of the north? Yeah. Um, 
or are these just weird one-off cases of escaped animals brought over on slave ships um, and then later on in circuses and then wealthy collectors in North America? Because mm-hmm. the real issue with this is the fact that there is no known primate species besides human beings that have migrated over into North America. Right. And so we, but even, even despite this, though, obviously we get these stories. And we did actually reference the those stone heads of what appeared to be ape-like creatures in BC. Yes. As well as the cave art. Um, but there has been a definitive lack of bones found. Yeah. And actually, it was interesting. Um, we had a listener and fellow podcaster, I believe, uh, Pericles. He reached out to us and said um, he was curious as to whether or not these stone heads could actually be marine animals, like mm. seals. Mm-hmm. And on closer inspection, I kind of looked at it. I was like, you know, you could maybe, like the nose feature on these heads could be, like, you know how seals, like, flare their nose quite a bit? Yeah. And they don't have any ears. But in my opinion, like, it... It is more so leaning towards, it's, like, a primate-like The features. shape of the head overall reminds me of, like, a gorilla. Yeah. Like, it's not like a... And and just to reiterate that these were found in Harrison, B.C., so this is near the Fraser, like, the lower mainland area, but it's not coastal. coastal. Mm-hmm. Right. So, question here, are we going to be finding a new primate species in this 21st century hat? <laughs> <laughs> there are new species being found. In 2012, there was the... Uh, Cercopithecus, um, Iolamensius, <laughs> totally Not that. bad, not bad. <laughs> a newly discovered species of African monkey, so that's kind of cool, yeah. and this was discovered in the DRC, so Democratic Republic of Congo, and, um, together with this other highland mangabees of Tanzania, this is the second new species of monkey that's been discovered in the last 34 years, and actually to add to that, so that, that that's specific to Um, the African region. I'm going to go over to Honduras just for a second here when we covered the Lost City of the Monkey God and they were doing their ground truthing in the Mosquito Rainforest in that unnamed valley, which has since been called the Valley of the Jaguar. And they were discovering new subspecies of howler monkeys. Yeah, that's right. And that's not even that far away from civilization. That's right. And this is just like four years ago, people. Exactly. Um, And like we always reference single account. Okapi. <laughs> Those are just classic ones that everyone Oh, they are. I mean, but they are. I mean, the, especially the Okapi, because that was one that was a true mm-hmm. mythological creature. Yes. Like, in the 19, uh, early teens and stuff, right? Even just looking at it now, I'm like, that can't be Doesn't real. Doesn't look real. Mm-mm. Half zebra, half donkey, half whatever, right? It's just bizarre. <laughs> but, okay. So, really cool, though. New monkey species found just, just a few years ago in 2012. Mm-hmm. Pretty profound, right? It is. And we've got a lot of territory that nobody's walking through these days mm-hmm. up here in North America. Sure, you can fly over it, but it's pretty dang dense. You're not going to see anything. Um, you're not going to see anything. So, how does this all... How, how can we tie in evidence of actual apes? What would be the, what the be? reason for the, an ape in North America? Well, right? and what, what's the most comparable as far as even, like, current species, past species, to what we are witnessing in all these stories and right. accounts. And the answer for that is a creature known as Gigantopithecus. This is a idea that's been put forward by a, a few different cryptozoologists and researchers, most notably Jeff Meldrum, who's a doctor from the University of Idaho, anthropologist, um, and he's been on a bunch of different cryptozoological shows and things like that. He's a hardcore believer in Sasquatch as a unidentified ape species in North America. But here's just some details on Giganto. 
<laughs> one of the coolest ancient creatures, honestly, just a massive monkey. So extinct genus of ape that existed from around 9 million years ago to possibly as recent as 100,000, but maybe even more recent, according to some researchers, and existed during the same period as Homo erectus. So living amongst our ancient ancestors, Very right? cool. Wide, wide uh, dispersed, you know, like throughout India, Vietnam, China, Indonesia, basically placing Gigantopithecus in the same geological time frame as several different other hominin species too. Mm -hmm. So the primate fossil record suggests that species Gigantopithecus blacae were the largest known primates that ever lived. So an, standing an average of 9.8 feet tall <laughs> and weighing an average of 400 or 540 to 600 kilograms around 1,200 to 1,320 pounds Yeesh. on average. Wee. Massive creatures, right? That's and you look at the pictures, like of like you know, like the renderings of what they would have looked like. I'm just like, I don't even know what I'd do. No, but of course, you look at it and you're like, okay, if something like that could have possibly had ancestors that made it anywhere other than the the far east, this kind of looks like a Sasquatch. It kind of does. It's ten feet tall. It's hairy. It's gigantic. It's smart exactly. because it's a it's a primate. The one thing about this though is like it it's it was a quadrupedal animal for the most part that's right? the belief but yeah. but could could this have just done the exact same thing that many other human subspecies did where they just just stood up one day kind of thing potentially you know and and maybe there was slight modifications to its arms because like you look at a lot of the pictures and those arms are massive yeah. and they're like almost as long as its whole body but maybe you get subtle morph um what's it called uh, just yeah different appearance morphologies and potentially all that. Hmm. Gigantopithecus was first discovered when a paleontologist found a strange molar belonging to this giant ape. Um, and it was, it's actually kind of funny. It was found when he was examining bones said to be dragon bones <laughs> in a rural Chinese apothecary. Ooh, that's so cool. The weird thing about Gigantopithecus is there were, they've reconstructed what this animal was based off of literally just a few jaw bones and hundreds of teeth. Whoa. Um, we don't have a full skeleton. That's crazy. So even those renderings then are kind of taking a huge shot in the dark. More or less. I mean, from a jaw, you can definitely get a lot. Because you don't know what the spine would have looked like. You don't know the curvature. You don't know. We're also anything, not really. researchers in that. No, so totally. Maybe totally. you can. I don't well, know. Right? Yeah, like, like to a certain extent, <laughs> like you take comparative species that you do have full skeletons of, I would imagine, and True. then kind of try and piece together the puzzle. That's really crazy, though. Like so, so that again, right? I love how that is a severe lack of evidence, but something that we have found traces of, like physical traces of, no body found. So that leads to the question, wait a second, did these creatures have their own burial practices? <sighs> oh, I mean... Did they have, you know what I mean, like ways of disposing of their... Yeah, you'd think you'd find something mm -hmm. if it was that widespread. Mm -hmm. They're claiming it was ridiculously widespread. That's hmm. a good point. That's something that comes up with the idea of Sasquatch too, burying their dead, right? Yeah. So one of the interesting things, though, about the early days of the discovery of Giganto was a thought that they were cl very closely related to early hominids. So... <laughs> particularly Australopithecus. Oh. And this was on the basis of the molar evidence. But now there's kind of a shift uh, in this idea of the evolution of Gigantopithecus. And it's now placing it sort of more so in the subfamily of Ponginae, so more closely related to um, species today, such as the orangutan. Oh, okay. Which doesn't necessarily take away from the idea that it could have, um, you know, evolved into something more bipedal, like mm -hmm. a Sasquatch. Mm-hmm. But it does still kind of muddy the idea because <coughs> we're trying to dis distinguish between the idea of Sasquatch as a relic human, mm -hmm. an ape, 
and Gigantosaurus somewhere in between. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I don't well, know But what exactly. if one of these Gigantos was like, just saw a pretty looking um, Neanderthal woman was like, hey, you, let's get together. And then boom, before you know it, you got a whole new species. Bada bang. Bada bang. And just there you like go. the Denisovans, right? <laughs> Sort yeah. of. I mean, they were they were sleeping around. We ended up with a unique <laughs> human species there. I don't know. Who knows, right? Yeah, totally. Paleontologists basically claim that Giganto has been extinct for hundreds of thousands of years, right? But of yeah. course, not everyone is completely convinced mm -hmm. that this giant ape, or at least something related to it, couldn't have survived. You know, maybe there's still something still chilling around. So this is a popular theory among Bigfoot enthusiasts, right? That this legendary Sasquatch is actually a representation of the expansion of Gigantopithecus into North America. So according to this theory, a species of Giganto survived, of course, and mm -hmm. was able to be essentially make it across the Bering Strait land bridge and able to colonize North America in some ways, right? Okay. There's a lot of issues with this. One of the main issues people take with it is the idea that Giganto was only found in Asia, yeah. as far as we know of right now. Mm -hmm. But some researchers actually speculate that Gigantopithecus may have evolved into what we actually know as the modern Yeti today in mm -hmm. Asia. Okay. They're known to be in Asia. That's where the teeth and molars are found. Yeah. And here we have another bipedal hairy hominid seen in the mountains of Nepal, things mm -hmm. like that. Oh, yeah. Could this be an evolutionary transition from Giganto in yeah. Asia. There is a bit of a gap there. Like, if you do want to go with the more widely accepted idea that Giganto would have died out about 100,000 years ago, the Bering Land Bridge didn't really open up until about 20,000 years ago. So, so it would have had to survive much yes, longer, Yes, it right? would have. Or, even by that point, perhaps it had um, taken up sexual partners with other subspecies that it was agreeable with and had morphed into something completely different by the time it had actually made the transition over into North America. Yeah. And that would make more sense, right? If, if the jawbones and the teeth aren't aligning with anything we're finding in North America. True. Obviously, the bearing... I'm going to get that in just a second, but the bearing land bridge theory is quite contentious. It to is some. indeed. Mm -hmm. It definitely is. But if you're buying this at all, if the idea that at least somehow, whether it's the bearing land bridge or whatever, could have made it across, mm -hmm. here's the connection between Yeti and Sasquatch, right? Yeah. We've got these two similar size, similar descriptive hairy hominids. Oh, one's totally. way far away from the other. That <laughs> makes sense. There is some evidence, if you will, to kind of back this up. In 2013, there were some strange hair samples that were found in the Himalayas and tested and revealed that two of these hair samples point to a possible new and mysterious species of bear oh. roaming the Himalayas. Whoa. That could actually be related to ancient polar bears that went extinct as, as far as 40,000 years ago. So the DNA matched up with this now polar bear that no longer exists. 40,000-year-old so polar bear? Doesn't match to the modern polar bear. And but it's this ancient polar bear match. Exactly, That's right? That's weird. You so that is from a cryptozoological standpoint, that is a win. That is that is basically saying, hey, people who have been seeing yetis in mm -hmm. in the Himalayas for hundreds of years doesn't exist. Can't possibly exist. We know everything that exists here. Bada bing, you might have two species of bear that are more closely related to something you thought died out 40,000 years ago. Than this to the modern that day. That really gives me more hope for potentially finding a relative of a giganto or an ancient ape or an mm -hmm. ancient human still existing in North America. In yeah. my opinion. Yeah, I know. that. I love that, actually. That's really interesting. And... I, that just brought to mind, I was like, wait a second, are you referencing that one monster quest where they had the, the, the you know, those um, hairs that look to be some sort of unknown, yeah. I think they were tying it to the Orang Pendek, and then it ended up being, like, totally dyed. It was human hair. It was human end. hair that yeah. died, and yeah, it was just totally yeah. fake. No, but that's more legit. compelling, for sure. Um, that's Definitely. really interesting. So, again, right, like, 
<laughs> the next question here, what would be sort of, what are the problems with all of this, right? What are we talking about here that could potentially, you know, counteract all these sorts of ideas? Yeah. So the main problems um, have to do with, okay, so this is an interesting one here. So there is all evidence points to the idea that the diet of Gigantopithecus was very specialized, consisting of mostly grasses, possibly bamboo, shrubs. So only able to live in specific environments. But I have a counterpoint to that. <laughs> and I wrote it in here because you're the one that actually wrote these okay, problems. Okay. <laughs> so my counterpoint to your problem yeah. is um, the Albert Osman story and how essentially he documented seeing them feed on these fine shoots of young grasses what he thought were almost like wild green onions and so yeah. the ones that he were with was very peaceful very much so in line with what i would imagine an ape family would do in their free time mm -hmm. or if they have free time <laughs> <laughs> in their free time grazing away they're out in the wilderness i don't know whatever but i thought that was interesting right so albert osman i'm using you as a prop buddy and then <laughs> the idea, again, that we've already touched on, Gigantopithecus is only found in Asia, mainly China, southwest, 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 oh my god, I can't talk today, southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. Where's west coming in there? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Where, where does my brain go? And the fact that obviously there's no fossil evidence suggests it never reached North America. Right. But again, right, we can talk about the Varying Land Bridge. Um, this is the postulated route of human migrations about 20,000 years ago from Asia into the Americas. It's kind of the most widely accepted theory, even though, even though a lot of people will have problems with that theory. And yep. a lot of those people are stem from indigenous um, groups, um, a lot of indigenous scholars, um, academics in the field that basically say that this is the BS theory. Right. Um, but essentially what happened about 20,000 years ago was this corridor that used to be ice covered um, basically opened up and uh, supported these human migrations. And this was, again, it's like, it's kind of a gap, right? So if Giganto managed to make that trip over, probably would have looked a lot different um, morphologically speaking. Oh, yeah, definitely. That type of thing. And I wrote this in here through, like, this isn't very accepted, but some people think that Giganto was actually rammed up to 13,000 years ago, yeah. which is very <clears throat> debated. And again, right, the more standard idea is that they died off about 100,000 years ago. But again, right, like, what if there are remnants around migrating to new lands, um, all this kind of thing? Like, maybe they were interacting with other um, early humans, like Cro-Magnon, um, Homo erectus, Well, Homo they were habilis. around at the same time. Exactly. Exactly. That's... It wasn't It wasn't just a neat timeline where it was like, oh, here's Homo habilis doing his thing, and then all of a sudden he just... Just dies off, and then here's yep. the next one, and then it's just not like that. It's all Definitely. happening kind of in a a big cesspool of different evolutions and everything. And we have gaps in the geological record, like referencing Ooh, yeah. these these evolutionary transitions in history, right? So the idea of Gigantopithecus potentially having some sort of a morphological change because of the changing environment in Asia, mm -hmm. and then you know its body shape might be changing, and might be yeah slowly heading towards a different world right north that being north america mm -hmm. and it's it's different along the way so yeah it ends up possibly walking bipedally exactly along the way because that's the final point here is the idea that there are very few apes that have evolved to be bipedal and that's basically hominids yeah um and then their most recent ancestors so most apes are quadrupedal and inc this includes giganto they do think that he was even though we don't have the full skeleton they do believe that because of the size right yeah. the size alone would kind of 
it'd be used in all fours. <laughs> yeah. Maybe not all the time, but generally speaking. So that's the that's the idea with apes. Gigantopithecus yeah. is definitely one of the main ones. Mm-hmm. And then you've got these weird North American apes that are smaller and different. I don't necessarily know if we're looking for that or if we're looking for a relic human, an mm-hmm. ancient human, mm-hmm. whether it be a remnant of a Neanderthal or something like that. We've talked a little bit about relic humans uh, in our Patreon episode on the Orang Pendek and the idea of ancient human ancestors surviving into modern times, right? Because we know that us, our ancestors, we existed at the same time as a lot of different ancient humans did. Could some of them have survived, right? Evolving along a slightly different path from us, Mm -hmm. but still having the intuition, the intelligence of a human to remain hidden from the rest of us, right? Yeah. There's some possible evidence for this. Um, discovered in 1989, but more recently studied, there was an associate professor um, from the University of New South Wales named Darren Cunro, and he co-led a study of a uh, 1989 series of bone samples discovered in his, what is now referred to as the Red Deer Caves in China's Yunnan province. And at this ancient cave site, right on the border of a super dense evergreen forest, just to throw that in there to tie in Sasquatch, <laughs> anthropologists found numerous bones that were scattered along the floor of this cave. And there was evidence of fires could be seen, um, evidence of it basically multiple different human populations using it as a shelter for thousands of years. But recent tests show that the bones found, like many similar finds, possess features that resemble a slightly different type of um, human than our early forebears in the region. So particularly that of Homo erectus or Homo habilis. Hmm. So this kind of, excuse me, kind of falls along the lines of the Denisovans. Oh yeah. Who were these people? Slightly different. Even more curious though, the results of the tests date the bones back to a mere 14,000 years. Ooh, so that's quite recent. That's well, that's right in and around the range of even the ancient peoples we've referenced to who we're already talking about Ogopogo and living in the Okanagan, mm-hmm. ancient Okanagan peoples and stuff like that, right? Exactly. Okay. So, huh. So, I mean, if there were potentially offshoots of humans that were existing very much more recently amongst us, could they still be living in the remote forest today? Exactly. So he, he there's a quote here from Conroe. He mentions the possibilities regarding pre-modern human populations still existing today. And he says, quote, new species are being found all the time by scientists, but with a large bodied species like humans, you would think it would be difficult to miss that someone would have reported it or a scientist would have found it somewhere else already. My guess is if it did exist, it would be in a remote place like Siberia. Some claims have been made about yetis and other creatures being Neanderthals surviving today in places like Siberia and the Himalayas. Okay. So we just mentioned the Himalayas a second ago. Mm-hmm. New bear species, potentially. In Siberia. Could. So that's... It's coming into that neck of the woods, right? And the Barian Land Bridge, like, that whole thing is just in that top corner, right? So that's the connection. So could this be possible? Could, could there be, be surviving Neanderthals and that is what Sasquatch is? I like this idea. I like this... It is, again, right, the whole human, animal, binary, whatever. But this is all supported by science, right? And the idea of the different lines and trajectories of different species and things like that. I love the idea that Neanderthals and ancient humans were a lot more sophisticated than we give them credit for. And research is definitely supporting that statement more and more. There was, this is the Smithsonian article that I don't want to quote, but I am going to quote it anyway. <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, there were, they were, um, 
they were talking about this in an article called Rethinking Neanderthals. And there has been new evidence brought to the table in the form of carved objects, hunting pits, limestone shelters that all suggest that these people were in group, engaged in group hunting, dividing resources, had culture, arts, all sorts of things going on. Yeah. And this site in particular was found just... I can't remember if it was just north of Paris. It was a few hundred kilometers away from Paris. Cool. But essentially, um, this was a quote from it. It says, the fact is this site, in particular the Parisian site, along with others across Europe and in Asia, is helping overturn the familiar conception of Neanderthals as dumb brutes. Recent studies suggest that they were imaginative enough to carve artful objects and perhaps clever enough to invent a language. So that's cool. What kind of language? We don't know. But could it be similar to what we hear in the forest in the form of knocking sounds, other sorts of things? Potentially. Um, it was actually really interesting. We never brought this up at the beginning of the show, but we actually had the privilege of going into an elementary school this week and also a middle school this week to talk to the kids about all this crazy stuff, talking about myths, monsters, and critical thinking yeah. and this kind of stuff. And um, one guy actually had a really interesting point. I'm sorry, this is definitely a side note, but he was talking about how, like, what would happen if two groups, say, what if marked hominids and Sasquatch from the West Coast met? What would happen? And I thought that was such an interesting um, hypothetical situation. And, like, we kind of talked about how, okay, would there be trade? Would there be war? Would there be a common grounds of language to even communicate with? Right. It would have to figure out all of those types of things. So I thought that was a really cool example. That is, And the cool thing about that question, too, mm -hmm. is there's such an inherent, like, sociological, like, blanketed over top of that question right like there's that they would that there would be this clash interactions between groups yeah yeah mm -hmm. very cool exactly and how that would all play out because you would imagine there would be confusion conflict all sorts of issues mm -hmm. to work through and so if you think about it right if neanderthals aren't these dumb brutes they do have language they have all these things what if they're communicating with other subspecies like you know what i mean like what if giganto itself was able to have language like you know like all this kind of stuff like these are all things that i kind of just want to throw out there sure just whatever see if it sticks but <laughs> all these observations kind of lend themselves to the idea that if sasquatch is a man of the forest a historic remnant of our evolutionary past he could be so much more sophisticated than we give him credit for. Right. And how, like, we say, like, oh, well, if he was just an ape or if he was just a whatever, then we would have found him by now. We're way smarter than those things. It's like, right. but that's his area. Like, we are not forest people. <laughs> and just, just, just again to reiterate from part one, like, we were, we were riding in horse and buggies not that long ago, people. <laughs> wouldn't even know what a combustible engine was. No. So things <laughs> haven't really improved that much in... Like, it's the veneer it's of a, It's been a, such a short period of time. It's a facade. It is. We're all just distracted <laughs> by the idiocracy of capitalism. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> I'm not going to get into that. <laughs> but I wanted to touch on Cro-Magnon because he is man's most um, recent relative, like modern man, Homo sapiens. Mm -hmm. uh, this was just pulled up from Britannica online. And it talks about how Cro-Magnon, um, they kind of were around in the upper Paleolithic period. So this is roughly 40,000 years ago to about 10,000 years ago. And they were predominantly in Europe, across Asia. They did have um, multiple migrations into the steppe region of Eurasia, that type of thing. And they did actually, in this one map, reference the Denisovan Caves. Um, I have that right, right? The Denisovan Caves were in... Oh, no, no, no. I think... Siberia. Yes, okay, perfect. Sorry, yeah. I thought I had that wrong. Anyway, so these Cro-Magnon people 
if you remember, you're a grade nine biology or whatever. <laughs> they were very robust. They were powerful and a little short on the short side. So about five feet ish, five feet, five inches, that type of thing. So not the stature of a Sasquatch. Not the stature, but generally heavy, solid with strong musculature. So you would imagine there could be variations within that that would maybe be a little bigger. Who That's knows? Right. I don't know. It's still hard to say um, precisely where Cro-Magnons belong in the recent human evolution, but it's very interesting. They had culture. They had sophisticated tools uh, such as retouched blades, scrapers, like end scrapers, nose scrapers. I don't know what that means. <laughs> Alrighty. chisels um fine bone tools so they could like carve stuff all that kind of stuff and they were mostly settled they would only move when necessary to find new hunting grounds or because of environmental changes so that's why you get these migrations into other areas as yeah. a lot of maps and things if you just look online kind of show you and interestingly like neanderthals these people buried their dead so what if they had what if sasquatch has exactly that these same practices which would lend themselves to the idea that the bodies wouldn't be found open in the wilderness. No, they definitely wouldn't. And then in addition to that, um, Jeff Meldrum makes the point, along with a lot of other researchers, that a lot of these locations where they're supposed to be living, whether it's the bogs in Florida or the um, the, the temporal forests up mm -hmm. here on the coast, there's areas in there where it's very, very bad for preserving bones. Mm -hmm. So if you are already, if you're already systematically burying something in a location where nothing's really well preserved perfect for not being found right beautiful and i can't remember what context this was in particular but we did have one reference to a cave i believe of like nine foot skeletons where there was a bunch found and the people that found them i think they were geologists but they literally couldn't move them because they were like wet tissue paper yeah is how so it was fragile described. so fragile so you would imagine and my other sort of side note to this is like if if Sasquatch is burying its dead, I would imagine just the sheer strength of that animal would be able to dig quite far into the earth. And, you know, like we referenced even in our, oh, in our mini-sode that we're doing for Patreon this month, the Nazca Lines, mm -hmm. these Nazca people, they built graves that were 4.5 to 5 meters deep. Yeah. So that's deep. That ain't a shallow grave. But no, anyway, so you, not. yeah, so there can be ways to hide bodies is all the point I was trying to make there. But anyway, so the idea that these um, these Cro-Magnons were more so found, like evidence has been found in Western Europe, I guess, mm -hmm. kind of leading into Eastern Europe, but some, I'm going to say that some could have definitely migrated further east and then out of Eurasia kind of thing mm -hmm. and found their way into North America. Potentially. But not saying that definitively, I'm just throwing it out there. Yeah, because the Bering land straight theory, like you mentioned above earlier on, is uh, contentious. It is and, contentious. Uh, it is. It's gaining ground due to breakthroughs in DNA analysis and increasing archaeological finds, but a lot of indigenous groups are just saying, no, 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 no. Mm -hmm. And they have their own mythologies, their own histories. And um, I even had one university professor that was an indigenous man from this neck of the woods, mm -hmm. and he just called it the BS theory, um, which does right. complicate the conversation. It kind of... It does. I, I couldn't... Yeah. But anyways, I'm not going to touch on that too, too much. Yeah. Um, yeah, and there is general agreement that the Americas were first settled from Asia. This was the pattern of migration, and but the timing, the place, and the peoples are all unclear. 
So <laughs> that <Okay>. was that so, <laughs> was <laughs> that was just a whole bunch of muddy nothing. So that's just a whole bunch of uh, yeah monkey wrenches into this uh, conversation. It is, and this is coming from <laughs> peer-reviewed sources. This is from Goebel et al. They wrote a chapter in a book called um, "The Late Pleistocene Dispersal of Modern Humans into the Americas." Hmm. Yeah. So. Um, you're the one who added all that stuff into the doc here. What do you? What, what are your thoughts? How are you feeling about Sasquatch as a relic human after that little tidbit you just threw out there? I, I'm, I like that idea. <laughs> I like it, so therefore it must be true. I like the idea of it more than I actually like, like it. it. <laughs> <laughs> but what I really just wanted to add in, just by bringing up the Cro-Magnon as an example, is is that just that fact that it's so... It's a spectrum of things existing at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. And that we don't know what was going on there. Yeah. What if there were some crazy, like, political organizations and, like, people that had the uh, acute awareness of other things? Like, you know, I, I don't know. Well, just like we we know that the indigenous populations around, you know, even 8,000 plus years ago had an acute awareness of other mm -hmm. tribes mm -hmm. of these Sasquatch-like creatures, mm -hmm. if you're taking that literally. Mm -hmm. So this would be similar, right? Yeah. So, like, this, all of this brings up this question of whether or not like ancient peoples that we know to have existed. So these, the indigenous peoples in North America were mm -hmm. literally existing amongst Cro-Magnon, like amongst um, ancient humans that mm -hmm. would have evolved on a different path. Yeah. And I'm not even trying to say that indigenous pathologies are wrong and that they are mistaken in their beliefs that they aren't part of that Bering Land Street migration. Like mm -hmm. there could be another explanation for how they were there or whatever. <laughs> Maybe they got there on a boat. I <laughs> <No>. suppose. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but they have their own explanations. That's all I'll say. Yeah. Well, but what are your thoughts on this whole... Well, like, it's... I mean, it's just so complicated, right? Like, I definitely... I'm still leaning more towards an unidentified North American ape species rather than rather than it being more closely related to man. But I mean, I feel like it's just somewhere smack dab in the middle. Mm -hmm. And I feel like even mm -hmm. this conversation, as maybe dumb as this is going to sound, that this conversation of how, is it more man or is it more ape? It could be somewhere in the middle. And that ties into the whole metaphysical idea too. There could mm. be some sort of a, an adjacent, an adjacent type of existence where there's something Ooh. very similar to us. It's not human. It's not ape. It's just similar. And we mm. see it in certain circumstances, right? What if it's all just supposed to be like the uncanny and we're all just like seeing ourselves in different ways? That like... is definitely one of the theories um, that a lot of people have, right? Because because it's so ubiquitous. Because every culture around the entire world has a hairy humanoid living in the mm. forest story. Whether it's the Yaren, the Orang Pendek, the Almas in Siberia, the Big, Bigfoot Sasquatch, yowie. the Napes, the Yowie. Mm -hmm. Everywhere you go, there's, there's, there's one of them. Is that just a part of the human condition? Is yeah. that really just a part of us staring exactly. into the abyss and thinking that there's something out there like us? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there's so much actual real physical evidence and, and sightings and, and encounters and attacks mm -hmm. and people missing that it's like, how could it just be that? How could it just be the projection of us yeah, humanity's human condition. Mm -hmm. What I found really interesting about this whole relic human thing is that there's still sightings today of what people believe to be ancient humans that are still existing. <laughs> and this dates back to some interesting periods in time, one coming from the First World War. I've got two examples, one from 1917 and one a, a hundred years later in 2017. So I thought that would <laughs> cool. be kind of interesting to throw that. One incident occurred 
late in the year of 1917, when the Reds were pursuing the White Army, so for those of you who are history buffs, Mm -hmm. so this is just following the first, well, this is mid-First World War, but this is before the kind of like a weird transitionary period in Russia, right? Mm -hmm. The troops of a guy by the name of General Mikhail Stepanovich allegedly shot an Almas. So this is the large, hairy bipedal creature that lives in Siberia that are known to the Mansi, the indigenous peoples in the area of where like the Dyatlov Pass mystery took place, right? Mm -hmm. So this is the Siberian hominid. And they allegedly shot it as it was emerging from a cave. This was a quote from the general. The eyes were dark and the teeth were large and uh, and even and shaped like human teeth. Mm. The forehead was slanting and the eyebrows were very powerful. The protruding jaw bones made the face resemble the Mongol type face. A little racist. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the, the nose was very flat. The lower jaw was very massive. Basically Ooh. describing a Neanderthal. Yeah. So a whole bunch more sightings like this would occur. And this would lead to people basically... Researchers assuming that the Almasti, these peoples yep. of the forest in Siberia, are very much likely surviving Neanderthals because of these physical descriptions. So, Neanderthals, did they go extinct 40,000 years ago, or are they still chilling in Siberia? They could very well be. Right? What if they're the ones that are in Eighth Canyon, too? <laughs> Potentially. I, I, I mean, I don't know. This is... The, the, the whole the, the idea that it was shot outside of its cave, like that just reminded me of the whole Fred Beck story, how he shot the thing. But anyways. Yeah. It also reminds me of the movie Strange Wilderness when they just like unload on a Sasquatch because it like <laughs> makes a weird sound. It's like, huh? And then they just like <laughs> That's a really funny movie. We should do that on film Friday. We should. Yeah. Jumping ahead a hundred years, twenty seventeen. Very, very different place, but similar sort of landscape. Mm-hmm. Finland. Okay, so after firing up his stove, the stove in his sauna, because you know the Finns like their saunas. It's like a sauna in here. Oh man, I wish, I love saunas, we should go to Finland. A 48-year-old man named Mieto, living in the east of Finland, went back inside of his house after he lit his fire. He's getting ready, he's getting, he's heating up his sauna, he's gonna go have a, gonna go have a steam. Right? Alright. So he's in his house having a snack, and he looks out the window, and he's like... Very confused because he says, quote, I checked through the window if smoke was still coming from the sauna's chimney, and I noticed two vaguely humanoid figures exiting the sauna, <laughs> leaving the door ajar and stalking into the woods. Oh the two creatures, he adds, were giant humanoids walking in a, her- a hunched posture. <laughs> After I lost sight of the figures in the woods, I checked the sauna and it had warmed already pretty well, only that the door had been left leaking the warmth out. I produced an electric torch. This is all translated, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and with its light, I saw that an unexpected visitors had left brownish, coarse hair oh. on the ground. What? Did he collect it? Mm-mm. Don't know. <laughs> but Come on, man. It's 2017. He, he basically, you be more he than believed that. he had seen two Neanderthal relic humans warming up in his, okay. in his sauna. Well, there you go. Finland. So this yeah. is very northern. I, I would imagine that there's lots of places for those creatures to hide, too. Very similar to uh, BC, yeah. Canada. So again, we're here We're here coming down to the end, and we're just left with this question again with this story here. Like, were, were ancient indigenous populations interacting with surviving, you know, Homo erectus, Homo habilis, potentially even? Mm-hmm. Populations living amongst amongst them? The bigger, well, not the bigger question, but another to add to that is the idea that 
remnants from all of these groups, all of them. Yeah. Neanderthal, Cro-Magnon, Homo habilis, Homo erectus, Giganto, like all, like, and there's even more that I'm not naming right now, but all of these different sort of subsects from, and variations and, and, and just different trajectories along the same sort of tree in the path. Yeah. Could we all just have, like, could there be just pockets small remnants and we're all very closely genetically related so the possibility of crossover and of breeding and all that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. very much lends itself to this sort of plurality i would say of sasquatches yeah (laughs) well that's kind of my final thought to be honest like we're coming down to the end of this and i'm i'm curious what are your thoughts well, I'm glad you gave that as your final thought. Mm-hmm. I think that's as coherent of a final thought you could possibly have after this three-part <laughs> series because yeah, I'm way more confused now than when we first started. Yep. Because when we first started looking into this and researching, I was of the mind of two kind of things. Honestly, I was never really thinking of Sasquatch as potentially related to relic human populations. Mm-hmm. I've always thought of it as a unidentified ape Mm -hmm. or this basically just interdimensional species like it's living in a plane right next to ours that's why it's so similar to us and that's where this whole idea of the human condition and us wanting to stare back having something reflect back at us Mm -hmm. that's similar to us the abject if you will or whatever Mm -hmm. where that kind of makes sense exactly but ultimately i want to be the cryptozoologist here i Mm -hmm. want to because I'm, I keep mentioning the vast amounts of territory, we do have physical footprint casts and stuff. I think that this is an unidentified species. I'm not going to call it ape. It's mm-hmm. going to be something similar, something in between that we just don't know of yet. You know how we're, we're one chromosome off of the mm-hmm. great apes? Maybe this is a half chromosome. You know what I mean? This is a half chromosome. <laughs> not even possible, maybe it's probably. But possibly, right? Something. This yeah. is. I think this is a real thing. I'm yeah. not buying into the UFO accounts. No. I think that those are just, those are coincidental. I think I, so I think they're coincidental, and I think 99% of them are probably hoaxes and yeah. not true. Not true. Mis- misnomers, missightings. And then on top of it, like, um, I'm just going to throw another wrench in there. What if those are not related to Sasquatch at all, but we get the similar description, right, from Skinwalker, where it's this dark large upright thing again Mm -hmm. that reference from the beach story that you told Mm -hmm. how those girls armless necklace um, black thing moving in the bushes sluggishly what if that's more like a shadow creature thing like you know what i mean like that sort of because like it is always just an outline it's never like an actual that's just the stories that we've told there's probably a lot more out there that do dive into more uh, nuances and and more descriptors that would kind of counteract that statement but yeah, you're totally right. Like, this started off, for all of you listening, it started off as we were going to do this as, like, a one-off fun episode talking about old Yellowtop. Yeah. And it quickly snowballed into something that we both didn't really anticipate, but it's so fascinating. Yeah. It is. So we really hope you guys enjoyed this series. We do. We do want to hear your thoughts and your ideas and your theories, um, feedback, comments, suggestions, everything, right? Definitely. So, of course, you can always email us into the portal mailbox at gmail.com. We're always active on our socials. Um, come join us in the forum. I hope Facebook isn't doing that stupid thing where it's not telling us that people want to join the group. I hope <laughs> not. I hope not. Yeah. And then um, 
any other closing thoughts? I mean, as always, just thank you so much to our producer, Charlene Randler, yes. and all of our Patreon supporters. And I know that you guys out there love to believe in this stuff. So yeah, please reach out to us because I believe in Sasquatch. Amber believes in Sasquatch. In and some we want form. you to believe. And <laughs> we're going to run a fun little contest. We haven't really, oh, should we announce that yet? Maybe we'll just keep it under wraps for now. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll just give you the tidbit. There's going to be a contest, <laughs> some really cool prizes related to Sasquatch yes. and mm-hmm. UFOs as well. Yeah. And um, it's just going to be a really cool little little prize pack. So stay tuned for that. We're going to kind of put something together. And um, yeah, it's going to be really fun. Mm-hmm. So stay tuned for that. And on just final thoughts, like everyone, I hope you have a fun Easter weekend, yeah. lots of family, lots of chocolate. Um, we're going to be at the lake, so it's going to be sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Trying to cram in some research, but uh, we are done with Sasquatch for now. We've exhausted Sasquatch. <laughs> so again, we really hope you guys enjoyed this, and until next time. Until then.